We have a caller on the line. I, w- I wanted to phone in. Hi, how's it going? I'm, I'm doing fine. I just wanted to say, hey, hey uh, Dom. Dom Barbelay, uh, it's good good to talk to you. Uh, I, I think you're all doing really exciting work. You know, that's uh, that's why I called. Terrific. Do you have a particular interest in artificial life? I worked with, like, a, a Vita for a long time. I think it was a Vita for a long time. I just got genomes that got shorter and shorter. Uh, I've written some of my own stuff. I think all the algorithms involved are really good. This is a search for solutions. You know, I want to see Earth physics in these simulators and get the things that are making technology as soon as possible. That we can copy, technology we can copy. Yes, I think there are so many uh, potential directions. In terms of your own use of Avida, um, I mean, what kind of what kind of abstract things did you did you build from us, and how did you, you know, add to Avida as a, as a project? You know, I haven't I haven't been like hacking on Avida. You know, just with the configs, like uh, I would have them, I would have them add all the children to just the end of a line, and then it would wrap at the end of the screen and uh, start overwriting the the oldest organisms. It turned into kind of a race, but I, I would have the insertion, uh, the insertion frequencies way up, and take out all, t- all the deletions I could, I could get away with, hoping that I would see uh, some kind of, kind of adaptive behaviors evolving longer genomes. But I don't believe I did. All the ones that I've uh, that I've backed up were, were shorter and shorter, which I seemed impressed with at first. And I consider this kind of a pathology, really, of uh, maybe a few of the models and genetic models that are available. Uh, I've been working with critterding where they're just uh, big brains, uh, neuron and synapse organizations. I don't know if there is a genome in those critters, but they have uh, large, large brain architectures which are copied and mutated uh, among, among, the, uh, among the children. And these things have to navigate in a world not unlike Larry Yeager's Polyworld, uh, which I, I have, been, have been working with a little bit. I'm thinking about voxels, voxels to give them kind of a height map there to move around on, but uh, then they would need more... Uh, more dimensions of freedom for the camera, obviously, if I was going to calculate the angle they're at on a slope. Certainly. It gets, uh, it gets, uh, 3D math has never been my, my strong suit here, but, uh, but I, you know, I have a lot of vision. vision. Yes, I think in terms of combining these simulations, I mean, I've been in, um, aside from talking to Larry Yeager, I've been in extensive correspondence with him in terms of uh, teaming some of the ideas in Noble 8, particularly with regards to terrain mapping, vision, uh, biology, weather simulations, all these components into into Polyworld. I think the the beauty of what we're doing with Biota is it brings simulators together to have these kind of discussions. I mean, you make a very interesting point with regards to neural mapping ultimately being some kind of genetics as well. And I think this is something that uh, you know Larry worked on um, in, in Polyworld in particular. What would you like to see in future artificial life simulations? Well, I, I think, and I, I haven't used Polyworld yet, but I think, I think the brains in that must be uh, extrapolated from the genes, sort of procedurally generated, which kind of means the, uh, the total brain space is, is, uh, is less than higher. On the other hand, a brute force search might not, might not be ideal either, since the uh, brains you find in nature are all extrapolated from, from a genetic code. You know, me, I, I'd rather... Uh, uh, I, I think that what we should want really be doing is specifying more rigid parameters for these models. Um, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of like crowd simulations, et cetera, where we have uh, fairly narrow fields that we try to uh, evolve the contents of uh, just for specific types of uh, types of behavior, uh, this sort of thing. Certainly. I mean, that's what I've, I've written on recently. I think the idea of 
and creating competitive parameters between artificial life simulations is critical. And I think um, certainly uh, Polyworld and Avida and all these kind of things all, all lend themselves to uh, competitive parameters. But, I mean, there is also a problem in terms of the diversity of artificial life solutions currently. I'm, I'm assuming, being a frequent listener, you've heard, to, you've heard Bruce Damer's discussion of the Evo grid. What's your own thinking with regards to that? Well, I think that's very exciting. This kind of work, uh, obviously, lends itself to, to distributed computing uh, uh, strongly. It's strongly distributable. If it can be worked out so that we can have a project kind of CPU hours they're turning over on Boink right now. I mean, every day they produce uh, 100 CPU years on some of those projects. It's just unthinkable. I know, I know there's a project there now with a guy who just did a 50 billion, 50 billion generation run on some kind of a, uh, some kind of a machine code soup. 50 billion generations, you know? That's terrific. So there has to be, uh, there has to be something worth seeing that uh, scientists will want to see. If we can, if we can get something like that together, you know, a one, two-year run would uh, would be worth much, much more than that. Many hundreds, thousands of years. Certainly. So, do you think there's a, a problem with regards to uh, language or basic fundamentals in terms of these artificial life simulations coming together? Do you think it's something that, you know, the intellectual contributors? and need to have a kind of meeting of minds and work out standards. I mean, this is the fundamental problem with regards to the Evo grid. I mean, what's your own thinking on that? Obviously, if, if, uh, if there's any way, you know, that, uh, that it can be split up into many applications that, uh, so that you can a activate various, really, uh, various fields, uh, field, fields of interest among the people who download these screensavers and are participating, you know, so they have their fish or they're walkers or climbers or, or whatever they want to have. And, of course, you have these structures being exchanged if possible. Uh, that, that seems to me, seems to, me to be the, uh, you know, the really compelling aspect of this model is where we can have sort of novelty evolved in, in one model, uh, switch over to another model where perhaps it, it would not have evolved there. Um, that this could really, that kind of injection of novelty, the possibility for uh, evolution through traversal, I think could remove some of the uh, some of the tendency of some models over extended runs to stop at points where they kind of require you to write out write out your uh, genetic data at that point and uh, change change the parameters in order to bootstrap the next the next phase in the development of the world. Really, uh, really a problem I've seen again and again. If I had some kind of an overseer function that was just uh, and knew everything I did and then changed the parameters for me, you know, there would be no reason to uh, to to attend these runs. But again, if, uh, if these things just migrated when they hit a certain merit, or, uh, or, or literally the edges of the world, and, uh, and things were falling in from, from the edges, and there would be uh, selection pressures and, and so on and so forth, and just a lot of compost there as well, something you can really begin to visualize and sort of go for a long time. But uh, but an, an, an inspiration, you know. I I I want to uh, I want to see parts of it running right away. Even just simple, uh, you evolve programs to write strings or, uh, or draw pictures or anything, and then and then get it out there. You know, some simple uh, even do it on peer to peer. A project like this could be done peer to peer. It's just a matter of docking protocols almost. The ongoing discussion is the the people that think that humans are going to be the critical part of the kind of selection pressure on this kind of 
um, simulation. I mean, you speak with such passion in terms of your own background. How did you come to artificial life? I, I don't remember, you know, when it appeared on my radar. I just realized, I suppose, in a great flash one day that uh, that it could be done. I, I probably, uh, God, I remember seeing a, a blackjack program that uh, learned to play against itself in Java at one point, you know, and uh, the idea that, that you can turn you can turn cycle simulation time into uh, novel forms is uh, something something that's occupied more and more of my uh, my mind space, mind space lately. It's a, uh, is a, the potential for psychedelia is immense. You get to a point where you get to a point where the rate of uh, I mean, just in terms of cycles per second, you should be able to get to a point where the rate of change on on uh, simulated world is so rapid and so bizarre that watching it is a psychedelic experience. And from there, it's a uh, it's a matter of you know a, a skip and a, and a jump to uh, where the progress of man is such that uh, trying to understand anything about it is is like indeed tripping on a, on a drug of some kind. You yeah, know, certainly there's a strong overlap with this, and um, I mean, through the obviously there's no you know necessity for this kind of connection in the biotech community, but obviously through um, Bruce Damer's own connections, there's a, a, a strong link with the psychedelic community with regards to all these kind of narratives. Although um, we've touched on it with a few things, with the ideas of the singularity and also uh, other discussions associated with Terence McKenna and. Uh, these kind of things also, obviously, the, the spiders on drugs discussion recently. Dawkins is working with biomorphs, uh, frogs and trees and things like this, but, you know, Leary went on about digital media in a way which was not a great more, a great deal more grokky of the, the reality of the thing and the times we find ourselves in, say, McLuhan, who also did. But here's the fascinating thing with regards to Leary. If you look at his one of his early speeches, I actually used to have this queued up in my Biotolite sounds, but I don't currently. He was in contact with Dawkins' uh, primary teacher and instigator. They lived in a similar um, part of New York and were in constant communication. So the link between Leary and Dawkins is actually far intellectually stronger than one may uh, precursorily pick up. And if you listen to early Leary and even later Leary, there is a strong narrative with regards to uh, fundamental memetics, and he actually got it earlier than Dawkins. So it's an interesting connection. No, absolutely. There's, there's a lot to be done still in this field. It's kind of a frontier. I think it's exciting. I, I wish I could do. Uh, I wish I could do more than I'm doing right now. I have to get. I have to get some workstations together. Just kind of a development environment, and sort of see what happens because I, I know there's a still, still new science there. I wish we could have these fringy fields at, at the sort of edges of things. What happened to Year of A Life? Ken Stoffer, Evolve 4.0. Does anyone? I remember he did about 320 days of the year of A-Life. Yeah, I keep an occasional contact with Ken, and I don't have a clear indication what happened to that project, but the fact that it's still um, it's still semi-active. I mean, certainly um, a number of us have been approached by um, various people in terms of running our simulations for extended periods and seeing what comes out of that. I think we all would like to do something like that. And, I mean, I know Ken is a, is a frequent listener to this podcast, so he can get back in contact and let us all know how the, the year of A-Life went. Um, but it was a very interesting project. And I think what Ken started with fundamentally was very, very simple, which meant that there could be 
a kind of greater interest of emergence in a relatively short period of time, which meant that even the longer periods that he simulated, there was a, a greater interest of complexity. I also remember um, Tierra, similar discussion associated with that, um, probably maybe even 10 years ago now, where Tom Ray ran it for an extended period of time. Now, I appreciate we, we have a diversity of listeners that um, tune into to Biota Live, and you seem to be someone who would be uh, well utilized in kind of instigating or participating in a number of projects that we talk about frequently. How can how can people get in contact with you? Uh, it's it's not difficult to get in contact with me. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm based in in Toronto and I'm on IRC all the time on Freenode and, and Pound AI. Uh, I'm Brillin on on there after my email address. Uh, so you, you can in fact see me there, Brillin on or Pi Guy for Python. Sometimes for mood on Freenode. Sometimes, sometimes, and all you have to do, you know, is uh, is ask me about anything. So in terms of the topic of this evening's discussion with regards to how to create artificial intelligence from artificial life, this is obviously something that you have a, a passion towards. Would you like to talk on this evening's topic? I think it's a strong I think it's a strong approach, you know. I, I really think that uh, for instance you could use genetic algorithms to generate uh, training data, training regimes, uh, educational procedures for AIs that otherwise we might not be able to make on our own bring them up to up to uh par. On the other hand, just the uh what you think of as the bottom up approach to uh AI where you where you evolve it by selection pressure in, in an environment where uh where tribal circuits form and then uh go on up up the ladder for various skills and whatnot is incredibly compelling because then you can uh, theoretically just select a mind out of a out of a you know, what equates to real civilization. At that point you have an electronic slave pool. And it really seems like a whole different, uh, a whole different issue. What people classically think of as AI, which would be something that is like implemented, maybe stamped with a childhood, comes that way. A non-human intelligence, these things would be more like us than, than a mind uh, that is designed. Uh, so, the, so the ethical question looms large too, of course, as well. It, it's not clear. I don't, I don't believe we'll get, uh, we'll get intelligence natural language processing out of some kind of an evolutionary procedure before it's already really competent by a, by a convergence of uh, various narrow AI fields. But uh, it's still something I very much uh, am trying to... Yes, I mean, I think certainly it, you, you beg two questions there, but I think the obvious one is that whatever comes out of an artificial life intelligence would be so far removed from what exists in contemporary artificial intelligence in terms of uh, paradigms and schemes and uh, phenomenalism and embodiment and all this kind of stuff. It would be so far removed from that. And I think there's an interesting problem in contemporary genetic programming uh, where solutions of intelligence can come out of genetic programming which are so completely abstract that we may not even have the means to understand that they're intelligence. But that's the second part of the question that you're begging in terms of this idea that the intelligence that comes out of an artificial life system would be human-esque or something that we could relate to. I mean, my own sense with regards to this is that we could end up within, or we may already have intelligence that is so far removed from our own means of understanding intelligence that we still keep kind of scratching our heads with regards to these kind of problems. I mean, what's your own thinking on that? There appear to be an intelligence operating in these systems. I mean, trends that, uh, that appear and... Uh 
appear and disappears in the population as, as reactions and trends that are popping up in other populations or changes in the environment and this kind of thing. But what we don't see is a lot of these converting into long-term stable adaptations, so a new organ or, or new behavior. Uh, I, I think a lot of the time these creatures have to be just much larger. They have to be much larger and occupy uh, more space and RAM and on the disk so that there's more capacity for any one of them to, to embody intelligent behavior. On the other hand, you know, if they could be procedurally generated from a very small genome, if there's some very small code that will produce intelligence, then, then, then even if there's like only one, you know, that is a thousand bytes long, will produce an intelligent mind, that's 0.1% of the uh, point one percent of the thousand byte state space. That's nothing. It would take no time to find if you had a test for intelligence to imply that, you know, all, all the programs of that uh, at length. Now I don't know if there is an intelligent one thousand byte program, but it is still only point oh 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 one percent of uh, of a megabyte, you know, of of hundred uh, K. So so very much on the horizon. Like how how big is it that the smallest intelligent program we can find by a by a random walk? You know, how big? I mean the Distributed.net has been going on worse odds than that for over a decade, worse odds than I can imagine. So, I mean, this return, I'm not sure if you heard the, the start of, um, of this evening's uh, <laughs> monologue, but my own definition with regards to intelligence is that it's on a continuum and, and very heavily associated with survival. In fact, ultimately, intelligence is a, just an adaptive process in order to survive. And if you use this metric with regards to survival and associate it with intelligence, uh, a lot of the uh, glamour or, may I say, uh, wrong-headedness associated with what we typically characterize intelligence as being is removed. And I think certainly if you look at um, a wide variety of systems which uh, exist and are observed and have an ability to survive independent of human maintenance. I think this is the, the interesting question with regards to intelligence is what is what is slightly more than persisting sufficient to actually um, you know, merit intelligence for this metric. I mean, what's your own thinking in terms of describing intelligence purely as a means of survival? Well, that's the thing, right, is, is uh, having kind of a, having a fitness function that we can really sympathize with. We need to find X amount of food and breed in a certain amount of time is a really good way for us in watching them to expect to see behaviors that uh, we would recognize as intelligent. It's good because it's not abstract. But again, I would argue that maybe if we can, if we can implement behaviors, even if you have machine code creatures, right? So some, some of these models of creatures that are evaluating machine code in order to move around, in, 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 which, case, in which case these things can, uh, can have certain behaviors, sorry, evolved in, in isolation, sort of in uh, arena situations. Um, turning corners, uh, moving around one another, uh, understanding that food is nearby, this kind of thing. And uh, we, have, we can really have these components assembled, uh, assembled piecework into, uh, in, into a system which, which makes calls to them. This is something seeable. This is something seeable. I, I'll, I'll, tell you I've, uh, I'll tell you one thing I've thought about just as far as evaluating uh, an assembly code uh, script goes in order to... Uh, an organism. Uh, if you had, uh, if you had some kind of a uh, kind of a table, all right, because uh, if you have the you have the uh, the, uh, the the esoteric programming language brain brainfuck, and it has eight instructions, and uh, two of these are to move the data pointer left or right. Well, if you can move it up or down as well, then now you have uh, four four faces on this thing. You can have uh, visual data coming in on. Uh, 
uh, on one of them, or uh, or anything, anything at that point, and uh, and moving moving in towards. Anyway, I remember looking at uh, I remember looking at No Blake a few years ago, and each of this cube uh, that that that's uh, that's your, your program song, which is I I read it conveys uh, uh, information about the landscape, what they're sensing, and so on. It serves as a kind of memory, and uh, and I thought if you just have this this cube where these things are uh, these signals from the outside are navigating inwards and kind of averaging, blurring through some like fire demo effect or something like this, and then these these machine language things are just moving a pointer around in two or three dimensions and reading and writing. And then at one at one edge, you know, you have a uh, motor effector wall where the pixel they write to forms a certain action. And then those signals, <laughs> right there, you're drifting inwards. They also have a memory of that they could access by navigating towards the center of the cube. I thought, uh, and then just, yeah, let these things move this data pointer around, do reads and writes at very low cost. <laughs> maybe, maybe you'd see some kind of general intelligence come out of that. I mean, it should develop uh, routines for doing kind of uh, searches and shapes, gestures in this uh, in this box, seeking it. <laughs> you know, like it's really hard to imagine because you would be talking about long, long machine code, uh, long, long machine code genomes, specifying uh, actions which are mostly internal, operating on uh, just a box which contains all the data they have about the universe, would be n size. Um, you just need far, far more, far more cycles than are available. Honestly. Um, Honestly, this is uh, an, an idea I, I, I'm sure I got from Noble Ape. Uh, so I'm, it it I'm, certainly I'm sounds like a, a Noble Ape idea, and I mean, certainly when you called, I was discussing the idea that um, all the artificial life simulations we've discussed so far have had a, a very strong internal, external um, simulation space, and I think what you've touched on is, is just the importance of this in some regard in the artificial life um, simulations that are created. So you've given some background to how much wave sensorium, right? Like what, what you're talking about is almost a Cartesian theater in this case. It's really Certainly. a thing for them to be within in terms of uh, a perceptual sphere. Even a perceptual cognitive sphere, obviously there could be scratch space in there. They wouldn't need any kind of stacks or registers. You, you mentioned um, Ken Stalfer's work. I mean, this is ultimately uh, what he does with K-Force. I can't remember whether I actually put out this section of my chat with John Klein uh, a couple of years ago now, but he talked about an early Graysum meeting where they had been tinkering and written a simulation to do just what you're describing. It, it, having run it for about three hours, they ended up with some machine code that had survived that was very, very obscure but had managed to kind of conquer the simulation space. And I think what you're describing is, is exactly that in some regard, but within a kind of internal cognitive simulation. I mean, in writing down the notes for this evening's show, it occurred to me that we could move even past dualism to where there could be uh, multiple layers of kind of simulation space that were critical. I mean, ultimately, this is what you do with regards to some kind of uh, um, intelligence metric and some kind of genetic uh, genotype, phenotype metric. I mean, this is what more complicated artificial life simulations seem to be all about. It's like things like Core Wars, but all the codes so deeply entrenched, there's no way it can write <laughs> to other codes. Only in the most tortuous manner can these creatures affect their environment, or indeed the creatures around them in any way whatsoever. But it still um, seems to me like a, uh, a very, very rich form of embodiment. And right now I'm really rooting for uh, a richer embodiment for these organisms. I think that's lacking, that it would give them a certain life. This uh, happens by magic, but there are a number of solutions. I know... Uh, 
I know Delta Force had, had polygonal characters on a uh, uh, voxel landscape, and honestly, that looked beautiful. So in terms of uh, the, the kind of broader narrative with these Biota Live podcasts, in terms of getting the message of artificial life out, I mean, you seem to be personally very receptive to this, but in your own thinking, have you thought that uh, does this need to be almost like some kind of internalized druidic cult that uh, a few folk you know, converse on on a semi-regular basis, or do you think it needs to become part of popular consciousness, and how do you think we should do that? Oh, you know, I, re I really think that... Uh I really think that there are a number of directions to go from here, and that kind of the uh, kind of the technology speaks for it for itself. Uh, I don't think we've uh, visualized all the applications. I've uh, I've thought about Evil Grid Deep as maybe being one of the uh, one of the lead-in applications for nanofabricators. It's uh, almost hard to imagine applications that would demand their uh, production enough otherwise. But uh, obviously, these all these things get. Uh, the, the, use, the use for these things become more apparent as, as we approach uh, times that will demand them and indeed enable them, enable them more entirely. Uh, this is uh, still, still a very exciting time to be alive. That's, I agree. Uh, I agree. That's actually going to be our, our topic um, tomorrow for American Thanksgiving. All the 2600 for a little while and in Toronto, in near here. Few few years. I think we're starting a, a great thumb meeting if I can. I've to a few people about this. I know that would be a good way to sort of uh, pull, pull the, the mind share as well as whatever, whatever else we can do in terms of, I mean, if I could get an industrial space or something, you know, like what the Loft had in Boston to just kind of set up a bunch of machines in. And, I mean, I wouldn't have to worry about the power or whatever, just somewhere with good power. Right now, this seems to be a hot, a hot button topic. Certainly. I mean, I think if you look at the, if you look at the biota community in, in Canada, there is, a, there are a number. I mean, obviously, you, you have a number of people, Dave Kerr, Dick Gordon, a number of participants who, Jeffrey Ventrella, spent a long period of time in Canada. There are folks in Montreal who I think have a, a space that would be ideally suited for this. So, I mean, I think in terms of Canadian biotons, there, there is a good crop for you to communicate with. No, it's true. Canadians have always been sort of an unknown quantity, but it's not so bad, you know. I've, I've attended a few conventions in the States, and I felt like... It felt like I uh, understood. So I'm not too scared about uh, missionary work. I hear what you're saying. So, I mean, in terms of the narrative that you've described, in terms of the potential and also the aspects of psychedelic crossover, I mean, obviously Dave Kerr um, has, has a long-term interest with regards to all these kind of things, and he sounds like someone you could uh, jam with extended links with regards to all these aspects. I think, you know, there are a number of folk in Canada who are, are like-minded with regards to their passions of artificial life and also the potential for it to go in the wide variety of directions that need, you know, visionary such as yourself thinking over long periods of time with regards to these kind of issues. What kind of topics would you like to hear covered in future Biota Lives? Jeez, I don't know, you know, you just you, you cover the spectrum kind of, of the, all the time, so it's it's hard to say, you know, if, if I think you're missing anything. It's, 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 it's been for me just kind of a feel to, to go in and out of during, uh, during your expanse of hard work, and it's always, it's always comforting to me to know that uh, there are people still thinking about it. Because it seemed to feel seemed to come and go before. Well, what you really have to do, I think, is at least pull together so that there's there's a community out there of some kind that, that people can go to for the state of the art. But they aren't reinventing the wheel over and over again, and uh, sort of having false starts. Really want uh, more patches, more contributions to uh, code, 
I've, I'm going to uh, I'm going to fork I'm going to fork Critter Ding. Make a special coffee where everything that dies has a secondary fitness function applied. It's score based on its behaviors in life. So in fact, the chance of being reincarnated is actually really really useful for doing fast high frame rate runs. I think it will help. This kind of thing. This kind of thing. It took nothing, you know. It took nothing. It's a uh, hundred lines. It's an interesting problem with regards to the issue of reinventing the wheel and also the, the fundamental nature of the kind of hobbyist artificial life community. I mean, if you talk to a number of folks, even occasionally myself included, the aspects of reinventing the wheel as in large part part of the fun, you know, the, the nature of kind of making a better wheel in some regard or, or making improvements to the wheel seems to be a kind of recurring narrative and I think it's fundamentally the nature of the wonder kind of hobbyist mentality that a number of artificial life developers share. What's your own thinking with regards to this problem of, in some sense, needing to reinvent the wheel and also needing to build on from that? I spent so much time working in a vacuum, you know. It's frustrating. I mean, I've been aware of Core Wars for years and years, but the idea of evolving these programs, uh, they occurred to me. I found that there was someone doing that with Red Code at one point, but it's difficult to know if uh, this kind of work is going anywhere. Every now and then I'll go to YouTube, I'll go to Google Video, and I'll just look up artificial life and see if there's any runs that people have put in, like uh, someone with a new PC and a copy of Framestick Theater has done like a million generations or something like this. It might be really worth seeing. You know, obviously uh, obviously these emergent behaviors in uh, simulated worlds are, are a totally novel, totally novel phenomena. It's, I think, undervalued. I don't know if I want to say that, but, uh, but definitely, I mean, it's all going somewhere quite, uh, quite frightening. The polygon counts are way up, and uh, you know they can evolve flora and fauna and you know, artistic properties for games. You know, visual generation of these things automatically, production quality it will be a really different world. Certainly, and this returns to the idea that humans are the, the fundamental selection pressure of artificial life. I think you've you've raised a number of really interesting points this evening, and certainly. I, I feel my own, you know, responsibilities with regards to kind of keeping a number of these narratives alive through um, future Bioeta podcasts. Well, thank you. I appreciate you speaking to me, Tom. What I'm actually saying is I'm encouraging you to call in and participate in future Bioeta lives and instigate other folks in the community with regards to your particular observations. I mean, this is fundamentally the purpose of Bioeta Live is to have people such as yourself call in and interact with uh, with artificial life developers. No, absolutely. You know, people have people have got to know. And, uh, I'm not afraid to do that. I've had some good conversations on Bioticon, certainly. I've acquired some insights that way already, just in the little time I've spent on that list. So I'm I'm happy to uh I'm happy to give back anything I can. All right, well well thanks again. I'm I'm gonna go, I guess I'll go and uh, I'll hear the rest of the show on my computer. Terrific. Well, thank you very much for calling in, and you're, you're exactly the reason that I'm uh, doing these extended shows over the Thanksgiving period to give opportunity to, to folks such as yourself to call in and, and provide insight, and I think you you provide a lot of food for thought for the other folks listening in, and, and I'd like to thank you again for calling. Yeah, you got so many shows in so few days, I thought it was a good chance to just... <laughs> one Yes, I'm looking forward to uh, to a lot of contribution, and you've set it off in a wonderful way. Thank you very much. So that was an interesting caller, and this is exactly the reason that I'm uh, doing.
doing these uh, biota lives currently in order to get this kind of productive feedback. Where was I in my discussion? I think I was talking about the relative complexity associated with creating these simulation environments and in fact that they were simulations within simulations. This raises a very interesting point which uh, the caller also raised, this idea that the stuff that Dick Gordon was initially talking about associated with the origins of artificial life, this fundamental idea that we need to have components from which can come artificial life. The same is true with regards to uh, having components which can evolve to produce ideas of intelligence in terms of survival. So in order to create this kind of long-term evolving system, the question is really still out there. Do we need to develop new methods of simulation or do the existing methods of simulation work? And I think certainly the topics that we've discussed tonight with regards to chaos and complexity and all these things come together in a beautiful way to uh, to start to instigate. I mean, ultimately, I'm not trying to provide too many answers with regards to this. Um, I'm just trying to provide some degree of instigation for folks such as uh, the, the caller who called in and other folks that are listening in to potentially start their own artificial life simulations or perhaps not necessarily reinvent the wheel, perhaps instigate existing artificial life simulators to move their uh, projects in the right direction. The final part that I wanted to make was the fact that all this comes back to code. This comes back to source code and ideas that need to be written in terms of programming. You need to take the philosophy, take the insight, take the discussion and actually write that down in code. And the standard open source logic has been that the code is written somewhere else and you just need to take and integrate the code and this is some part of the discussion associated with reinventing the wheel. But another topic that we're going to discuss in this extended series is, relates to what a curriculum of artificial life should be, what kind of education do you need to have before you start writing artificial life uh, simulations. And I think in this context, I'd like to put out my own bias that I think um, whilst an artificial life curriculum can be created, it shouldn't presuppose the need for any formal kind of education before you start writing artificial life simulations. I associate this with um, childhood learning. I mean, this is something that I've talked about. My NYU talk in 2000 was concluded with discussions associated with childhood education, and I think this returns the idea of kind of tinkering, experimenting, you know, breaking, re-gluing, rejecting, accepting, and then doing a lot of additional and sometimes tangential reading to try and instigate new directions. I don't think a lot of the skill set that can be discussed with regards to creating an artificial life simulation can necessarily be learnt. I think a large part of it is more to do with instigation and just general interest, basically, in terms of, uh, you know, constantly, in some sense, reinventing the wheel, but realistically looking at aspects of life that you are looking to simulate. And a sufficiently detailed, complex, chaotic, sometimes competing environment in order to create an, an evolving system, or at least a system that continues to evolve far beyond uh, the scope that one would originally assume, a kind of a as super emergence, which is ultimately the goal of, of every artificial life simulator, I, I would probably guess. You know, there may be some exceptions. Returning to this idea of open source, I think the problems associated with existing open source applications which aren't specifically tailored to artificial life deals with this issue of processing complexity, some understanding of how you take the environment, potentially so many different error conditions. You don't want a situation where 
you know the the algorithms that you were using uh, do not adapt well or at least play well with the kind of environments that you can be uh, putting your artificial life simulated agents in and I think this is fundamentally a problem with regards to using existing open source solutions in terms of uh, artificial life simulation. It begs the question, where would you find the right kind of open source solutions? Well, I think artificial life simulators have traditionally created something along that line. I've certainly recently been spending a lot of time tinkering in polyworlds, um, hopefully for a future collaboration per the discussion with the caller. I think there are a number of uh, possibilities here um, in terms of the existing open source artificial life uh, community. However, for example, if you take um, existing neural network applications and try to tailor them to artificial life simulation, it will take a lot of extra work, well, maybe some extra work. I think this is in large part due to the narrative associated with Larry Yeager, and I do hope that Larry will call into one of the shows in this cycle because he offers a lot of... Uh, a lot of insight with regards to this kind of tuning also. Folks will remember the discussion with Steve Grant similarly, uh, the kind of skills required in tuning a neural network in order to tailor it perfectly to artificial life-related applications. So if I'm going to conclude this show a little bit early, I think the trick really in creating these kind of simulations is to seek out like-minded folk and communicate, which is ultimately what has happened so wonderfully with regards to this show. I think the ability to have uh, discussions with existing artificial life simulators that can kind of teach you or at least instigate directions that you can take and, you know, we're all relatively friendly folk in terms of communication. And also I think in, if, you know, if we have needs or people or, um, you know, existing things that uh, folks that have a certain degree of insight can work on, I mean, this is ultimately also a productive thing. So really I, I would encourage you, if you're thinking of starting an artificial life simulation, to get involved with the Biota Conversations mailing list, to become a part of the uh, community, to float ideas. We certainly accept correspondence from anyone, people who have amazing and uh, potentially quite extreme simulation ideas. I mean, we're more, more than happy to hear from you in the Biota Conversations mailing list. In order to find that mailing list, biota.org, Click on the uh, mailing list links at the top of the uh, front page and that will show you the Biota Conversations mailing list. And there's always quite a bit of traffic going through about a, a variety of topics, obviously stuff we discuss on Biota Live and other topics um, relating to, to general artificial life discussion, associated news stories, various stories that would be applicable in some regard to artificial life developers. Similarly, I also want to give a shout-out to the Great Thumb blog. It's also a very useful place to go, g-r-e-y-t-h-u-m-b dot org slash blog, uh, B-L-O-G. Great place to go for news articles, additional instigation, this kind of stuff if you're looking to create these kind of simulations. So this has been the first of the uh, extended Biota Live recording sessions over this period. I'm not sure when this episode is going to air specifically, but it's always wonderful to have callers who are willing to call in and jam on uh, any number of topics as has happened this evening. So I'd like to thank you very much for, uh, for listening to this podcast, and there will be uh, future ones like this, no doubt, coming out in the feed. It's been a wonderful opportunity to, uh, to share ideas with the community. Anyway, Tom Barbley, signing out. <laughs>